Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Manoush. I'm Alpha. And I'm Stephen. And we're delighted to be back in the studio for our first in-person New Statesman podcast. We're since reunited. The Yay. <laughs> but we're not touching each other yet. <laughs> Did we touch each other before? <laughs> <laughs> it's just been so long, Stephen, I can't remember. So on this New Statesman podcast, we're going to discuss Tony Blair's intervention in Labour's most recent woes. And you ask us, will the Greens overtake the Lib Dems as the third? party. Tony Blair has written a piece for the New Statesman, which is out this week. And the headline of it is, Without Total Change, Labour Will Die. And that's what the front of the magazine says this week. So it's quite a dramatic intervention, obviously, from the last Labour Prime Minister to have won those three elections in a row. And we're at a time when there's a lot of soul searching within the Labour Party yet again, after a bunch of quite difficult election results. Stephen, you've you've read through the piece and you've, you've read through many a intervention from a Labour grandee in the past few years. What struck you about this one? You know, is he saying anything particularly useful or different this time? I guess what I found striking about it is, um, in a way, actually was how uncontroversial it was in terms of its content, right? And this is essentially every post-mortem that the Labour Party has had since 2010, you know, be it Out of the Darkness, the one that Deborah Mattinson um, uh Keir Starmer's incoming director of strategy conducted in 2015, whether it's the Labour Together report and, of course, various Labour Together figures have done quite well out of the reshuffle, you know, Lucy Powell, Shabana Mahmood. All of those reports kind of go from different directions, either under Ed Miliband, you know, well, actually, in some ways, his, his, his schema of the left has struggled because it's either had people who don't inspire or people who inspire hope but also inspire fear. Obviously, Ed managed to have a situation where there was genuine fear of Ed Miliband in like, you know, like you go to like the Vale of Glamorgan or like sort of like, yeah, like this was back in the day when there were marginals in London, right? You know, you'd go to like, you know, um, Tooting or Battersea and there was genuine anxiety about an Ed Miliband government, but there was no concomitant optimism. Then under Corbyn, there was uh, concomitant optimism, but there was also uh, concomitant fear and then a deepening of fear in 2019. And in 
uh, 2010 that was just a wow these people are exhausted and uninspiring the only thing that is controversial i think and it's only really controversial in terms of the internal labor stuff is him saying look this approach of going let's just swerve culture wars doesn't work you need to fight you know culture wars are won not avoided is i think the controversial part of the thing in terms of labor's internal thing and it of course is a pretty big in the head of the Keir Starmer approach, which is, you know, basically to go what well, their security policy is, they don't want to talk about security, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I went on um, the BBC Two Politics Live panel show earlier and there was this assumption on the part of all the different panellists um, about uh, what Tony Blair was saying in this piece about about culture wars. And, you know, on the left, they were saying we can't ig- ignore these issues. They're important. Inequal- uh, equality is at the heart of Labour values. And then on the other side, people were saying, oh, you know, they're embarrassing themselves by obsessing over identity politics. And I had to say, actually, Tony Blair is is telling Keir Starmer not to pursue this strategy of just trying not to talk about it and then looking a little bit embarrassed and sheepish when you do have to address it. Because rightly in his piece, he says, you know, you can't you can't dictate the narrative all the time. You can't you can't choose what questions people ask you, but you can choose what answers you give. And I thought that part of his analysis was really interesting and quite new. And the heart of it was that you have to take the public with you. If you are going to criticise you know, the actions of the police, for example, you have to take the public with you and not say you want to scrap the whole police force or, or um, you know, import ideas from America about sort of um, what radical things you could do um, to police forces, because that just you know doesn't chime with voters. It doesn't bring voters along with you. You can acknowledge failures, but you have have to um, show a sort of confidence in those kind of British institutions as well. So I thought that part of it was really interesting. It was a criticism of Keir Starmer and it wasn't the sort of same old analysis that you sometimes hear from those kind of Blairite figures. Um, and another thing I thought was interesting about the piece was was something that Peter Mandelson was also saying when I interviewed him for the same issue, which is that Labour just sounds quite old fashioned. So Tony Blair was listing things like tax and spend and big state and public ownership and stuff. And he was saying, you know, well, that's fine, but it's it just, they, it just sounds old fashioned. They, they, those are museum pieces. We have to be talking about the revolution in technology and how that's causing inequality in people's lives and things. So, um, so I, I would, you know, I, I would, I would say to listeners not to sort of just prejudge what the intervention is. It's not, it doesn't sound like the same old thing to me. It sounds like something that could potentially be quite useful. But Albert, you know, how how is Keir Starmer and how is the wider Labour Party taking all of these different sort of pot shots from, from various angles? Firstly, a note of, of reassurance for listeners who maybe don't like Tony Blair. I definitely saw some people on Twitter who um, were very upset by the idea that he's on the cover of The New Statesman. I would just add that the New Statesman has featured interventions from the left and the right of the Labour Party in recent days. You did your really good interview with Laura Pidcock, Anush. You also did your interview with Peter Mandelson. We have that huge intervention from Tony Blair. Stephen's column in the magazine covers all of the concerns close to Keir Starmer. I've been kind of covering that too. And I so I feel like actually my main feeling is that for once, Labour is kind of having the right conversation and the people from the left and the right of the party are hitting on kind of the same problems and the same ideas that whoever I speak to, the people I speak to would be amazed by this. But I find that they're really common themes, whether you're speaking to someone on the shadow cabinet or someone from the left of the party who's feeling really frustrated, the idea of 
what they want to do and what the messaging should be and what they're reaching for and what their challenges are is broadly quite similar, actually. And it's only when you bring the factionalism on top of it that people start to have a problem with it. But the new shadow chancellor will probably be talking quite a lot about green jobs and um, the need for, you know, a really bold, radical economic offer focused on a green recovery with also a sort of made in Britain stuff thrown in. And, you know, I was speaking to someone on the left of the party who's not been very happy with Keir Starmer's leadership, you know, who's been willing to give it a chance for quite a while, but is feeling quite disillusioned at the moment. We were, we were talking about the problems that we mentioned earlier in the week about the the sort of party management issues and a feeling of lots of people, whether they're backbench MPs or people closer to Keir Starmer, all feeling a little bit excluded at the moment. And they were saying, well, you know, I don't need a cosy chat with Keir Starmer. I want a Green New Deal, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, which is the kind of thing that, you know, that you would maybe expect from someone on that side of the party. But I just thought it was really striking that that is also what the shadow cabinet thinks is what is needed. And then, as you say, on the culture wars, I think that's really tricky for Labour and the only thing that probably everyone can agree on is that the current strategy isn't working. There, you know, there, As you say, I think Labour seems absolutely petrified of having to talk about Black Lives Matter, having to talk about statues, finds the whole thing really embarrassing and awkward and it, and it seems to think that it has lost or that that's a, a, you know, that's a losing strategy for it before it even begins. I think that Tony Blair's strategy is interesting on that because I know that he made an intervention, I think right after the 2019 general election, where he sort of implied that the Labour position on trans rights was not working for it, which I think would anger a lot of people in the Labour Party who think that that is absolutely the right position on Gender Recognition Act reform to have. He was sort of saying that that it wasn't working. But then in this intervention, he has said that Labour needs to be able to have those conversations. And I actually think that most people in the Labour Party would agree. I mean, I I don't know about either of you. I haven't spoken to anyone in Labour who actually thinks that just trying to dodge some of these issues and trying not to talk about them is the way they should be tackling it. Clearly, it is the feeling that, you know, that they need to prioritise an economic message. But even the Labour Together report talks about being, you know, knowing which arguments to to pick. Lisa Nandy um, talks about, you know, you don't have to agree with your voters on everything. You just need to be able to have the conversation. I, I feel like maybe... Um, I'm sure lots of listeners don't feel this way, but I actually think that Labour is having a proper reckoning with its problems at the moment and it could end up being quite productive. In some ways, the the most revealing uh, line in all of the the various interventions in the magazine this week is um, Peter Manson saying to you, Anoush, the thing that I have heard from uh, almost the entirety of the Shadow Cabinet, every backbencher I have spoken to, an ambassador to a major European state. And now, what does Peter Mandelson say? Oh, yeah, I'm in contact with his office, but I don't really talk to them very much. This feeling of, yeah, like, essentially, the, when you hear people talk about the leadership, the leadership of the Labour Party, they seem to be in a constant state of being left on red on WhatsApp. And, <laughs> and Ghosted they, yeah, by the go- Labour leader and his team. Yeah. <laughs> you and, do not double tick the Dark Lord. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and I think that um, it's interesting, right, that that MP said to you, I don't need a chit-chat, I have a Green New Deal. But the interesting thing about it is they do have one, right? They they they. Ed Miliband did bring forward a very exciting programme of green issues, which 
as with every policy that in this Labour leadership has announced, they did the like, well, we've mentioned it one time, that's enough, on you go. And it's odd because my interpretation of what um, Tony Blair said after the 2019 election was the reverse of yours, which is he seemed to be saying, oh, it's great, you can have, you can have this stuff, but as long as it's not in the words he used at the time front and centre. And so I wrote a blog at the time going, Tony Blair is exactly wrong, right? The reason why Lisa Nandy's leadership election was derailed by arguments about trans rights was not because like she put it front and centre. She signed one pledge um, and then, okay, she signed a pledge which she then didn't agree with all of, which I don't think was a great choice politically, but she signed one pledge and it was because cultural issues are talkers, right? They're easy for people to get their arms around. It became the issue. And I do think you have this weird situation with the Labour's current approach on this stuff, which is, and everyone go, oh, well, yeah, no one outside has noticed. But I think most of the time, engaged voters are the canaries in the coal mine. And I think the present position of the Labour Party on cultural issues with engaged voters is basically every point in the divide believes the Labour Party disagrees with them, right? You, know, you talk to any of the official liberation movements and they're like, we don't think Keir's team are on side. You talk to any of the people who oppose any of those issues and they go, uh, Keir's, you know, in hoc to these people. But one person said something slightly right when I was doing the call. They said, uh, they said, actually, this is brilliant. They said, because usually the problem the Labour Party has is there's a conspiracy of silence about the problem we lose everyone talks sincerely about what the problem is for three months then the leadership candidates declare and we all start pretending that these problems don't exist and then we do the conspiracy of silence and the weird thing about the damage Keir Starmer has done to his authority is it has briefly created the space where the Labour Party can actually talk about its problem in midterm with a frankness than it usually only discovers for a very short time after an election defeat. And if it can actually do something useful with that, they may be in a better position, I think. It's it's funny, though, because I, I don't know how, how you feel, Stephen, but I almost feel like I want to intervene and I you know put some of the people I've been speaking to in a room together <laughs> because I feel like we're act acting like the mediators of all these people who have all of these issues as you say Keir Starmer's office not getting back to them these people who need a bit of TLC who need to have a conversation I feel like there are so many times when I feel like actually people agree much more than they really realize and I sort of just want to arrange to meet them all for coffee and then I'm not there and they're all there together. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Honestly, I think they, the way this is happening in public, it, it means that the conversation's happening, but but lots of these people aren't speaking directly to each other. And so you wonder how this will, you know, whether, whether Keir Starmer is actually able to, you know, show some leadership and try to harness this into a really productive conversation where he brings all these voices on board um, or whether it just, you know, they they air their dirty laundry and complain to us, and then nothing really happens. I think that remains to be seen. <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree with you. I think people are from very different parts of the party, basically arguing for the for the same thing or coming from the same from coming from the same sort of like viewpoint. I get that they're having this productive conversation in a different part of the electoral cycle than usual, but it sounds like a very similar conversation that I've heard quite a few times before in various degrees of anger and various iterations. And I did say. When I was interviewing Peter Mandelson, he was sort of describing what Keir Starmer's problems were. And I said, well, doesn't that just remind you of Ed Miliband? And there was the longest pause, a big sigh. And then he just went, you might conclude that I couldn't possibly comment. Oh, amazing. So I think it remains to be seen whether we are just seeing a rerun of of Miliband and whether they just pick the wrong leader again. So I'm actually once again going to, the Ed Miliband defender is, <laughs> is once again going to log join the chat, right? Which is that Ed Miliband had a clearly articulated theory of how to win the election. Now, it was not my theory and it didn't work, right? 
but and 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 it did. Uh, yeah, there were points where he kind of moved away from some of the assumptions of what he should have had. Uh, but they were partly about the fact that he wasn't the first choice of the PLP. He was saddled with a first shadow cabinet that was elected by the PLP because of the disastrous innovation that was shadow cabinet election, something which had blighted every Labour Party in opposition until Ed Miliband scrapped them the following year. And he had a problem that the most qualified candidate and also the most politically powerful candidate to be the shadow chancellor, Ed Balls, was not politically at one with him. And I think given the constraints on him, Ed did as good a job as it would have possibly possible to be of being Ed Miliband if your starting point is it's 2010, I've defeated my own brother and I'm not the first choice of either the membership or the parliamentary party. Whereas, so I guess I have the reverse thing in that I'm sorry... I, I am actually really angry with the Labour leader's office. MP, Labour MPs should not be phoning me to find out what the Labour leadership thinks. That's embarrassing for everyone involved, right? Like, I'm not a dating agency. The, the, the growing mystery of who in Westminster the Labour leadership believes it is worth its time to respond to, we can now confirm that it does not include Peter Mandelson. It doesn't include diplomats of major states. It doesn't include the PLP. It doesn't include shadow cabinet loyalists. It doesn't include shadow cabinet critics. So the question of what are these people who are ultimately paid by all of us, because if you're in the leader's office, you're paid by short money, not by Labour members. What do these people think their job is? Um, and I just actually become increasingly, increasingly um, embittered the, the more I hear like Labour MPs go, hey, do you know what the strategy is? And I'm just like, yeah, I mean, that shouldn't happen. Genuinely, I think that Jeremy Corbyn talked to more Labour MPs and he, you know, wanted to abolish quite a lot of them than Keir Starmer, who is the first choice of a plurality of Labour MPs. Um, but I do think uh, it is a positive situation for the Labour Party as a whole to be in. And the interesting thing is I am hearing um, various rumours, um, although this may be wishful thinking among Labour MPs, that Keir Starmer is now contemplating uh, the necessary surgery in his office. Uh, they may be uh, sounding out candidates for a new comms director and sounding out um, replacements for a political secretary. Now, of course, one MP said last time that I felt that Keir was listening about his office, I felt that they felt that they'd been entrapped into basically being like Keir, being like, hey, I'd like to tell you off. You know, like, would you like to tell me some opinions I can then complain for you for expressing? And this MP said, I'm not sure. I'm They're waiting and seeing. But I think it is an interesting question because I do think one of the problems Labour has had in this particular stint in opposition, you know, right the way back from 2010. If you compare, you know, if you pick up, say, the New Statesman in like 83, 87 and 89, right, they were able to talk throughout about the fact they had lost. Whereas instead, Labour does this weird thing where they have this weird ad speak in front of the public, right, where they do a lot of like going on TV and being like, yep, it's true, we have been sucking for a decade. But then when they actually have to have a talk internally, they do this kind of talking across purposes, saying things that aren't really true, ignoring the real problems. And they have, I think, had a more frank conversation in the past four days. Of course, part of that is some Labour MPs going, OK, right, there's there's no project here. We're, we're all going to have to get together and create one. Yeah, someone uh, after our last podcast text me saying, well, yes, look, we're, we're all clearly going to have to have to be Keir Starmer's lungs because politically speaking, he doesn't have any. Again, I still don't think that's a sustainable approach. But if the result of this conversation is, if the party is having, isn't Keir Starmer goes, do you know what, I'm 
tired of people talking very publicly about my lack of politics. It's time for me to demonstrate I have some. Then maybe uh, there is a useful moment in the life of the Labour Party, or maybe it's just going, let's extend those three months of frankness to cover a whole parliament before Labour lose the election. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You You Ask ask us. Us. So very quickly, we've had one extremely confused listener called Connor Mead, who is wondering why we're not allowed to store people's numbers in our phones. So Stephen, do you want to quickly set Connor straight? Yeah, sorry. That that was just, yeah, me being, you know, rude. Uh, we, we can say, say people's numbers in, my phone, in, in our phones. Um, therefore, you know, the journalists were not um, being being gold and the the line to take that was briefed uh, out later was just uh, untrue and also I as I said, a spectacularly bad bit of stakeholder management because it it really annoyed a lot of a lot of people who they did not need to annoy uh, so no the, the point was people do know who who these are but but yes sorry I, I i guess my adenoidal voice means that it's hard to tell when i'm being sarcastic and when i'm just <laughs> being um, okay thank you and and the question we're actually going to try and answer is from Noah Keat He asks whether the local election results actually show that the Greens could replace the Lib Dems as the third party of UK politics. That's certainly how the Greens are trying to pitch themselves now after their um, impressive results in the elections. Alva, what do you think? I feel bad stealing probably Stephen's point because this is really the main thing informing my thinking on this. I mean, I, I have a lot of time for the Lib Dems and I think that they have a lot of campaigning prowess and there are a lot of very talented people in that party. And for that reason, I I find it hard to imagine them being eclipsed in British politics, even though that is how it is looking at the moment. But um, it was Stephen who pointed out during the local election results that you can see the Greens beginning to position themselves as the third party in British politics because they have a very professional operation. You will have a lot of thoughts on this as well, Anish, from interviewing Sean Berry, but certainly they positioned themselves very well in London to mop up this, you know, quite a lot of Corbyn supporters, that that, that kind of idealistic young young person vote, but also um, have been very professional in, in, in making it clear that they um, have a no tolerance approach to anti-Semitism. Um, but then also, I think in other places, um, it was Stephen who pointed out when Caroline Lucas was on TV in the wake of the results, there was just a little line in there, something she said about, you know, t- you know, scrutinizing local building opportunities or <laughs> something, just a little, a little, you know, a soup sort of NIMBY. <laughs> that, that, that really just um, that I maybe wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't been watching with Stephen, but it did make me think that they are they are really 
they are probably preparing uh, slash have already been campaigning like Liberal Democrats in some ways and are sort of then well prepared to fight those local battles. You know, something you think of as an audible comma, right? And it was, you know, we've been campaigning for affordable housing, comma. Yeah, and then like democratic control over planning. It's just like, I, I wonder... I wonder if perhaps there might be a, a slight link between between these two things and indeed a slight contradiction between these two things. But that is the nature of, of winning seats as a third party in first past the post. Now, so I think this is a brilliant question um, because I think the best questions we get always are ones where it's like, well, it really could go either way. Because when I was uh, watching Jonathan Bartleby be interviewed on uh, Newsnight and he sounded every inch and like a 90s Liberal Democrat, you know, kind of, yes, we're taking votes from the conservatives but we're also taking energy from a tired labor party which doesn't doesn't seem to have the same zip you know kind of like yeah we're a non-threatening third party but with a sort of serious you know kind of positioning itself as to the left of the labor party i think unarguably that is currently more authentic from the green party than it ever was from the liberal democrats there are two things i think that we don't know um whether or not the Green Party will want to do, one of which I think they would definitely have to do to become the third party, the second of which I am more uh, yeah, more unsure of. The, the first is, and I genuinely do mean this in an admiring way, the Lib Dems are bastards at a local level, right? You know, they... they, they, they I mean, there's a by-election they might win where they did basically start campaigning locally before the MP was dead, um, like, let alone, you know, before the MP was in the ground in the funeral. The Greens did a great bit of classic Lib Dem campaigning in Bristol, where they did very well, a lot of council seats, you know, second in the mayor election, very possible that they could get a Green mayor uh, in the right set of circumstances in the next election in, in, in Bristol, where they had, you know, leaflet looked every inch like an official communication, you know, white logo and looks a bit like the ballot one, you know, pushing right at the inch of what you can do with electoral law, you know, like, guidance on how to vote and essentially like the guidance was like you know some people would like to have a good council here's a way you can have a good council voting green voting to stop the just you know this non-political lovely environmental stuff classic effective liberal democrat politics right of the kind of thing which turned them from also rans to a major force in the 90s and noughties that was always resisted by parts of the liberal democrats there are Liberal Democrats who will, you know, have been listening to this, you know, getting increasingly, you know, shaking with rage into their their sandals, uh, hearing this unfair d description of their successes. Now, the thing is, the Greens are an even more democratic party than the Liberal Democrats. I think the one of this is one of the things I don't like about first past the post is I think that for a third party to succeed under first past the post, they do actually have to be completely unashamed of going. Yeah, we care about climate change, but you know what? We hate new railway lines. Yeah, we care about affordable housing, but, you know, you can't build it anywhere here. Particularly in lots of that, that very promising kind of, um, I'm that sort of arc of seats in traditional conservative areas where Labour is nowhere, the Lib Dems maybe never succeeded or have long since fallen back. There's a really interesting smattering of potential green targets, right? And if they want to win there under first past the post, they're going to have to acquire that sort of slightly nasty we are campaigning under first past the post you know i mean yeah if you, you yeah you speak to some of the ethnic minority conservatives about how they feel the word local has been weaponized against them for example in some constituency battles right and that is the problem with first past the post you cannot win without those without that that element are the greens willing to do some of that coin stuff well, clearly some of them have done some... Well, I think some of the stuff I've described is a whole... There's a whole light universe between campaigning 
before the MP is dead and a leaflet mocked up to look like it is, you know, officialese. And some people may feel one of other than I, my order of which is worse is, is wrong there. Um, so that, that might be something they're willing to do. The question also is, is do you need to be a little bit more right wing than the Green Party is currently willing to be to be the third party in British politics um, in our system, right? Because the success still of the Liberal Democrats, right? You know, like Sunderland, our example, right? Where that is not because Sunderland, particularly, it's not Sunderland City Central has suddenly gone, oh, do you know what? We really, really dislike Brexit. It's because the Liberal Democrats have done their classic thing of being, you know, Liberal core, Tories can't win here, don't you have a rubbish Labour council, don't you have a rubbish Tory council in other parts of, yeah, it's a little bit what they did in Tunbridge Wells, for example, right? And this is the thing is, I think if you want to do that effectively, you have to be politically positioned in a way which allows you to take votes from both parties. And also, crucially, to take votes from both parties in areas where the other party is not a factor, right? So... Therefore, I think the Greens would have to do two things. They're both things that they're capable of doing. I think that um, one of the challenges the Liberal Democrats have is, is, you know, although obviously we talk about the importance of authoritarian voters, the United Kingdom is much more liberal than it was 30, 50, 40 years ago. And so it becomes hard. The space for a Liberal Party is smaller and smaller. And yet all of our parties, except the need for climate change, for radical action uh, to stop climate change and to, to navigate the climate crisis, the Greens, I think, do have the advantage that um, their issue is not going away and they therefore should be the natural home for a lot of those people. But yeah, those are two two things that... It's not just two things that I'm not sure they want to be. They're actually two things I'm not sure they should want to do. If they don't do those things, I don't think they can become the third party. Mm, yeah, I think they're eventually going to reach that dilemma. It matters less at local elections because, like you say, you can have a local green campaign against you know developing in this town centre or you can have a green campaign somewhere else saying we need x number more homes here and it doesn't matter because people are voting locally and and that kind of contradiction in the message isn't going to be picked up by journalists they're not going to be doing those kind of leadership debates where their hypocrisy gets torn apart so eventually that dilemma is going to reach them before the next general but I feel like they're ready for it. I feel like, like you say about them picking up some of the habits of, of the Lib Dems, I feel like they have reached that kind of political maturity. You know, it's not yet cynicism, but they, they definitely have recognised the kind of political challenges that they're going to face and the way to navigate them. Just a really interesting little, like, tiny point that wasn't even that relevant to my interview with Sean Berry was when she was kind of talking about sharing leadership with a man. And she was talking about how she always has to look so smart, whereas he gets away with, you know, look, not looking so smart. Um, because she's a woman in politics and and she's a green, so you know you're always you always have that extra hurdle of of credibility, um, and just the fact that she's even thinking about that, I think, was quite telling because it shows that image consciousness is a part of sort of the Greens focus now. They're looking a lot at the European Green parties um, and how they have sort of more of a um, sort of professional um, and, you know, uh, governing kind of uh, style um, that they want to emulate. And um, and I think they've reached that maturity now where they can make those kind of decisions where they think, okay, you know, our party members might not love this, but we're going to have to say this come election time because they're taking, well, because they made gains in Conservative and Labour areas they are going to have to try and tread that path. But they're also, what's different from the Liberal Democrats is they're saying we're different from Labour, we're different from the Tories, but we're also different from the Liberal Democrats as well. So they've got this third, <laughs> they've got this third sort of clapped out, you know, or, or how they try and start, um, style them as this third clapped out party that have been in government and, you know, haven't done much since and 
are looking a bit tired and made the wrong calls on Brexit and stuff. And the Green Party can kind of say that in Liberal Democrat areas as well. So there is a path to them, I think, being the third party. And also there is like an energy to them as well. They don't have baggage. I was speaking to a uh, a figure on the Labour left who was almost wistfully saying, you know, they were trying to be disparaging about the Greens, but they were sort of wistfully saying, well, they don't have a class analysis, so they don't have any of that that baggage. And in a way, that really that really helps them, doesn't it? Because they can say one thing to these, you know, young supporters who once supported Jeremy Corbyn, and then they can say a complete other thing to people in the blue wall in these Tory places where the the Conservative Party is kind of falling back. The question I know some of our Liberal Democrat listeners will be asking is, this is all true, but this growth was unsustainable, right? Then the Lib Dem approach to growing seats inevitably ended in destruction, defeat, and maybe the death of the party. Because once you've got 63 seats, if you can't get the big party to give you PR, all you do is go, oh no, my electoral contradictions have been cruelly accelerated. I think the difference is is that it is actually slightly easier to have a... So you still have all of that cynicism under first past the post, yes. But it's much easier, I think, to have a, con, a coherent Green Party offer than maybe emphasises slightly different things. But it's easier to be party of sustainable farming in yeah these rural conservative seats with no Labour history and party of oat milk drinkers who... Um, dislike uh, the authoritarian turn of, of the Labour Party on, on some issues. I'm allowed to say things like that. I, I am an oat milk drinker. But I think it's much easier to work out how you have a coherent message there that doesn't dissolve the second you achieve the third party dream of having 60 seats and holding the balance of power because there are a more consistent corpus of, of green asks than those though all of those people can agree on so i think that is the other thing that's interesting about them which is that i think the the problem the liberal democrats had is their approach to becoming the third party was built on sand and was always going to end in the 2015 election it, there's an open question about whether or not the greens want to emulate that kind of stuff but i think if they do do it i think that they can um survive and thrive from that approach the greens can have sustainable growth Whereas, um, just as a final thought, I suppose the the big question is like whether they actually could, because if you look at the Greens in Ireland, they're a a bigger beast, but they are fatally divided there. So they're in coalition as a smaller partner at the moment, or providing some votes to the to the grand coalition at the moment. And so many people in the party are really unhappy, including the, the the Green Party leader in Northern Ireland voted the the proposals down, lots of people left the party. I think that maybe more than any party potentially, there's just going to be a core of a membership who are very idealistic and have um, particular principles and who don't like this idea of going into coalition with parties that are slightly populist or centrist or leaning to the right and making some quite small green demands and then I think maybe more broadly in green politics there's just the the real tension of things on for example carbon taxes and the just the difficulty there in in expanding your electoral coalition beyond urban 
places and, and having an offer that you can make to people in rural areas that doesn't seem horribly alienating. So I think that the thing that we're not really seeing with the Greens yet is is those divisions um, because they're just on the up. As you say, they're, they're running a very professional operation. They're thinking more strategically about their campaigning. And it does seem in theory like they could become bigger beasts and make quite simple green demands and, and see progress that way. But I just think from observing how how tricky things get for the Greens elsewhere. I, I can just imagine maybe they'll find some way of avoiding it, but I just think that that looks like a problem waiting to happen for them, that the bigger they get, the more conflicted they'll be about what they want from politics. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. If you want to submit a question to You Ask Us, please email in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. We're produced by Chris Stone and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Please leave us a review and thanks so much for listening. Listener.